This week, relations between America and Pakistan hit a new low. Assistance is given to build influence. Washington is actually going to be left without any influence. And cleared at last, the RAF pilots blamed for the Mullah-Kintyre crash. Justice has no expiry date. Our family and the Tapper family have always believed in what this country could do for us in terms of justice, and today that's been proved. Headlines. Rupert Murdoch's refusing to appear before a Commons committee investigating phone hacking and other allegations of illegality at his News International Group. His son James Murdoch's also refused to give evidence next Tuesday, but Rebecca Brooks is to appear. There's been a rethink on plans to drastically reduce the number of Coast Guard centres. The government had proposed cutting 19 down to 8, with only 3 staying open round the clock. Now 11 will be kept and all will be operational 24 hours. A UN reports as Afghans are facing worsening violence on a daily basis. The UN says nearly 1,500 civilians have lost their lives in the last six months, a 15% increase in civilian deaths since last year. And police chiefs are warning significant rises in the number of burglaries and thefts are creating a growth risk to the public. The latest annual British crime survey shows burglaries rose by 14%, but researchers deny that's linked to the financial downturn. The United States has said that the killing of Osama bin Laden means they can speed up their withdrawal from Afghanistan. But could the fallout from the raid on his compound make the situation even worse? Pakistan's angry response to the, to the decision to send in U.S. special forces without informing Islamabad has seen relations between the two countries deteriorate rapidly. Pakistan's thrown U.S. military trainers out of the country. American officials are increasingly angry at delays in tackling militants hiding out near the Afghan border. This week, the U.S. decided to suspend half a billion pounds in aid to Pakistan's military. Bill Daly is the White House chief of staff. The Pakistani relationship is difficult but it must be made to work uh, over time. But until we get through these difficulties, uh, we will hold back some of the money that uh, the American taxpayers have committed. But all sides agree Pakistan is key to any long-term solution in Afghanistan. Dr. Maliha Lodri is a former Pakistani High Commissioner to the UK and ambassador to the US. Assistance is given to build influence. And by doing this, Washington is actually going to be left without any influence with the Pakistan army and with the people of Pakistan, because this will be seen as a punitive action, which is meant to punish Pakistan, rather than provide an incentive for cooperation. So how much damage could this row cause? Well, Arif Rafiq is a consultant on Middle East and South Asian security. He's on the line now from Washington, D.C. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Arif. We, we've seen this series of, of tit-for-tat moves between the U.S. and Pakistan since Osama bin Laden was killed. How bad are relations between the two countries now, in your opinion? Hi, yes. Uh, relations are pretty poor right now. Uh, there has been a uh, breakdown of uh, communication, uh, communication and intelligence sharing. Uh, Pakistan has pushed out uh, hundreds of U.S. intelligence and military personnel from the country. The United States has uh, temporarily suspended military aid to Pakistan. Uh, there's been a war of words and um, a war uh, using uh, their respective medias uh, against one another. And so 
uh, things are pretty bad. But at the same time, I think there's a willingness, a desire uh, on the side of both countries, on the part of both countries, to continue the partnership in what, whatever shape or form. And that's why uh, yesterday we saw an, an unexpected visit by the head of the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, to Washington. Uh, and uh, General Pasha, who's the head of the ISI, uh, essentially told uh, the United States that uh, we'd like to continue working with you, but uh, we don't. We will um, work against any sort of independent U.S. intelligence operations inside Pakistan. So they're both trying to maneuver uh, and, and recast, uh, redesign the relationship uh, on better terms. So America's move to cut the military aid it was, what, a warning shot across the bow? How do they expect Pakistan to respond? Well, what they'd like Pakistan to do is to take decisive action against uh, militant compounds in North Waziristan. Uh, these compounds um, are bomb-making factories and other types of facilities that uh, directly endanger U.S. and coalition and Afghan forces in Afghanistan. Uh, the Pakistanis on previous occasions have alerted uh, the militants to, um, to upcoming raids on these facilities, and so uh, it, it's, it's you know a definite indication that uh, the Pakistanis uh, don't really want to go after some of these militant groups there. Uh, so the United States, um, uh, previously Pakistan had thought that the U.S. would be bluffing in terms of any cutoff of aid, uh, and so the U.S. wants to send a message that uh, we're serious about this and you need to take action. Uh, could this also sort of boost China's influence in the region, do you think? There have been reports that Pakistan will turn to Beijing for military equipment and training. Do you see that happening? Uh, you know, uh, China is a critical partner of Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan and China jointly produce uh, military hardware. But China can never really replace uh, the U.S., uh, what the United States offers Pakistan, uh, especially in terms of uh, very advanced military hardware. Uh, so the Chinese... Uh, are an important partner, but they can't fill the void uh, left by the United States, despite the, despite the indication or the suggestion of that uh, by many senior Pakistani officials. Uh, so, um, you know, Pakistan will certainly be at a loss uh, as a result of any cessation of U.S. aid or, or relations as a whole. Uh, what's maybe a, a little worrying is that a senior Pakistan uh, military official has been quoted this week as saying we'll continue to fight the war with or without them in relation to the United States and if it is without them we'll do it in our own sweet time is that some kind of veiled threat do you think? Well actually I saw it as a positive message because uh, the day earlier um, the defence minister had said that if US aid uh, to Pakistan continues to be suspended that Pakistan will be forced to remove its troops from the border region. Uh, now the Army Chief said the next day, uh, he followed up and said that uh, Pakistan will continue to fight because it's in its own interest. So that's a good message for, that's good for Pakistan and it's good for the United States because Pakistan is conducting its own fight against its own militants or militants within its own territory that targets the state. Uh, and it's certainly in the interest of both Pakistan and the United States uh, to have uh, enhanced state capacity control over, over violent elements within the country to have greater stability and peace and progress there. And uh, very, so very, that as a very, very quickly, Arif, who needs each other more, the U.S. or Pakistan? In the short term, I think uh, the United States needs Pakistan for uh, an honourable exit, uh, a responsible exit from Afghanistan. So I do think Pakistan has the upper hand.
Ari Frafik, we're out of time, but thank you very much for joining us uh, on the programme. Well, as if further evidence were needed of the continuing instability in Afghanistan, this week the half-brother of President Hamid Karzai was assassinated. Ahmad Wali Karzai was shot dead at his home by his own head of security. But as the man in charge of ISAF troops in Afghanistan prepares to step down next week, he's insisting there are signs of significant progress on the ground. General David Petraeus says insurgent attacks are falling and insists that despite the row between the US and Pakistan, there is evidence of action to tackle the flow of militants over the Afghan border. If you compare May of this year with May of last year, the attack level is actually about the same. They did not continue up uh, the way the intelligence analysts had predicted. And June actually saw a slight reduction of uh, 3 to 5% over last year. Now, we touch wood, we have to see if that trend continues uh, or not, uh, but it is significant nonetheless. Uh, but this is hard. Uh, there is a resilient enemy, uh, and there is no question that that enemy is willing to cause civilian casualties. Uh, it's an enemy willing to blow himself up, uh, in some cases, to uh, achieve objectives. Over time, we have to develop sustainable security solutions to deny these areas to the insurgents on this side of the border and then to work with our Pakistani partners so that they can do the same on the other side. Because keep in mind that many of these insurgents are uh, posing what we believe is the most existential threat uh, to Pakistan, to pose the most urgent threat to the very existence of the Pakistani state. There's no greater honor, uh, there's also no greater responsibility than that of command. Uh, and I've been privileged uh, to have uh, probably more than my share of commands, especially as a general officer, uh, and especially in uh, some pretty important endeavours in combat. Well, General David Petraeus talking there. I'm joined in the studio by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, good to see you, uh, as ever. Um, general Petraeus saying that there is progress being made. You would expect him to say that, perhaps. Is he right? Um, yeah, in certain areas, definitely there's progress being made. But what you have to, what he has to guard against, and especially as he's about to take a job as the uh, head of director of the CIA, um, and that is it becomes the next phase of American operations are going to be particularly important because they will be CIA and Pentagon joint operations. And that, over a period of two years, is what the uh, Americans are asking for. They've also got the problem... Uh, of the death of President Kazai's half-brother. Um, uh, they are Papalsai, uh, part of the Papalsai tribe, and the, and the tradition in that tribe, uh, Kandahar, and their Pashtuns, of course, is that the next in line takes over all the business. And so what's going to happen is the brother of the late half-brother uh, will take over, but he is not the strong man. He, is not, he doesn't frighten people. In you know they were frightened of the last guy, and therefore the Kazais themselves are going to find it very difficult to control that part and that com complete that in, uh, interest. In Afghanistan, traditionally, things are settled not by talking but by fighting, and that is what the Americans now fear could happen as as a result of this. It's already started in a political way in in the Kabul Parliament, for example. There are 249 MPs, we would call them, 200 of them have now declared against Karzai. It is a political problem for the Americans just as much as it is a military one. In terms of the overall security, how much should we read into the, the death of President Karzai's half-brother? You alluded to it there in terms of people being frightened of him. He was somewhat of a, of a shady character. Does that uh, paint a similar picture ac across the country or is it uh, sort of an event that we shouldn't link to the overall widespread security? I don't think that his death 
will actually interrupt the security pattern at the moment. In the longer term, though, we have the problem of who controls that area of Kandahar, which is very important. Remember that who controls uh, the influence of the Pashtuns themselves. It becomes very important. Karzai is a Pashtun, say, for example. Um, and, but it's not the first uh, of these assassinations. Remember General Daoud Daoud? He was killed. He's been assassinated. He was assassinated, and that was very difficult. Uh, Mujahid, uh, uh, Khan Mujahid, he was also assassinated. That caused temporary problems. But in the long term, the success of or otherwise in Afghanistan lies not in Afghanistan. It lies in Pakistan. Which is why, as you said earlier, David Petraeus's role within the CIA is now going to be so integral, isn't it, in repairing that relationship? Very important. And, you know, we were hearing uh, earlier on about um, com- them, the Pakistanis complaining to the CIA that there are too many operations going on. This, in fact, is just for window dressing for both countries. On May the 11th, the Army and the Intelligence Service went to Washington and told the Americans to get the CIA out. The CIA said, we ain't going anywhere. And they're still there, still doing the business, but it's all window dressing at this stage. Still to come this week, the latest on a violent week in Northern Ireland. And we ask NATO what can be done to break the stalemates in Libya. News, discussion and analysis. analysis. This is Zigweb on BFBS. In the 17 years since the RAF's worst ever peacetime accident, the families of the two pilots blamed for the tragedy have never abandoned their campaign to clear their names. Two air marshals had accused Flight Lieutenants Jonathan Tapper and Richard Cook of gross negligence after 29 people died when a Chinook helicopter crashed in thick fog on the Mull of Kintyre in 1994. All 29 on board died, including dozens of Britain's most senior intelligence experts heading from Northern Ireland to a conference in Inverness. Now a new review's cleared the pilots and the Defence Secretary Liam Fox announced his findings to the MPs. I have written to the widows of the two pilots to the father of Jonathan Tapper and to the brother of Richard Cook to express the Ministry of Defence's apology for the distress which was caused to them by the findings of negligence. I also wish to express that apology publicly. Well, Flight Lieutenant Cook's brother, Chris, spoke outside the Commons. My father sadly passed away in 2005. His last words to me were on this case and to, for me to try and keep fighting to clear Rick's name. Uh, my father maintained that justice has no expiry date. Our family and the Tapper family have always believed in what this country could do for us in terms of justice, and today that's been proved. Well, during the review, it emerged a report raised concerns about the Chinook's airworthiness two years before the crash. The Liberal Democrat MP, Simon Campbell, has been involved in the campaign to clear Flight Lieutenants Tapper and Cook, and when I spoke to him earlier, I asked him why it's taken so long to clear their names. The decision, obviously, was a very important one. Uh, It was controversial why... Uh, because it was in relation to an accident which had killed in total 29 people, 25 of whom were, of course, very, very significant figures in the intelligence community in Northern Ireland. Uh, And I think on the part of the Ministry of Defence and indeed the Royal Air Force, and I don't fault anyone for this, I think there was a belief that the decision was the right one. Uh, But my own view has always been that when you looked at the regulations of the Royal Air Force at the time, then the decision couldn't stand because it wasn't possible to eliminate 
every other possible cause of the accident. 17 years is, is plenty of time for, for various conspiracy theories to spring up about why the pilots were effectively hung out to dry. You, you don't really give those much credence, though. Uh, well, I don't think this is a day for that. I think this is a day for uh, recognising the enormous commitment and determination of the families and for recognising that what, in my view, was a wrong decision has now been put right and put right, if I may say so handsomely, by the apology given by the Secretary of State for Defence, uh, both privately and indeed publicly yesterday in the House of Commons. What the report doesn't do is set out any explanation for how the crash uh, did happen, the causes for it. Is that something we just have to accept we will never know? Uh, the inquiry concluded that it was not possible to say how the accident had happened. And of course, that's one of the reasons why it seems to me, and always has seemed to me, that the legal advice was defective because the legal advice was such, or so the, the regulations were such, that at the time you had to exclude any other possible cause whatsoever before you could make a finding of negligence against a deceased pilot. Now, of course, that regulation has now been changed, but the consequence at the time was that you had to exclude any other possibility. And if anything was a possibility, however remote it might seem, then that meant that the regulation could not be satisfied and that a finding of negligence could not be returned. Well, Christopher, does this, after 17 years, draw a line under the situation? Well, officially it does, but it raises other issues. I mean, for example, some of the uh, chiefs of staff, chiefs of the air staff, CAS, uh, still around, uh, Air Chief Marshals Michael Graydon, for example, just last week I heard him saying, as regrettable as it is, the original decision was right. Uh, somebody I was talking to last night about it, he said, you know, you've got two uh, special forces pilots. They take an aircraft up. Um, the conditions are bad. They have limited equipment on board. What do you do? Uh, unless your nav is really bad, you fly around the island. You don't do the creepy crawly stuff which special forces pilots do. And that is why there are certain people within the RAF who accept what's been said, and I think that Ming Campbell's right, there wasn't sufficient evidence to definitely pin it on them, have to say at the end of the day, as uh, uh, the Air Chief Marshal was talking about last week, as regrettable it is that the original decision to accuse two pilots of gross negligence must stand. The other thing is important. When there's an inquiry, the RAF holds their own inquiry. There are people in the Ministry of Defence saying, really on these circumstances we ought to, to widen it. But there was no flight data recorder, there was no voice recorder, and so Ming Campbell's got it on the button. Uh, if there's an element of doubt, you, you can't come in with a definite decision like that. Well, that's how our legal system is, is built to work, isn't it? With insufficient evidence, there was no, arguably, there was no other outcome. So 17 years seems an inordinate amount of time to come to this conclusion. We'll never know what happened. Yeah, Matt, that's, that's absolutely right. And that's the daft thing about it all, is that it's taken 17 years. Um, this sort of conclusion could have come. And if you look at the 100, 112 pages, I was reading through it, if you look at a, a, about 112 of the pages, they will come to that conclusion. These guys, we cannot be certain, uh, but in the backs of certain people's minds, and don't forget there are the families also of 25 other people who perished on, on, on that trip, uh, not everybody's going to be satisfied. <coughs>
Excuse me, just catching my breath there. Well, Samin Campbell and other Scottish politicians are still waiting for a final announcement on the future of two RAF bases in Scotland. Let's hear what he had to say on that. I support the campaign for the retention of both Lossiemouth and Lucas, but of course, as the Member of Parliament for North East Fife, uh, in which Lucas is situated, I'm particularly anxious that Lucas should be maintained. Why is that? Because it seems to me to be a strategic necessity if we're going to provide proper air defence for the top half of the United Kingdom. Lucas has been providing that, uh, fulfilling that responsibility all the way through the Cold War. If I can put it colloquially, if it ain't broke, you shouldn't try and fix it. If it ain't broke, you shouldn't try and fix it, unlike my voice, uh, Christopher. What are you hearing about the future of the bases in Scotland? Well, there are certain people who would say that you're absolutely right if it ain't broke. Well, what is broke, of course, is the Cold War. And therefore, you must take, although uh, you must take economic decisions as well into consideration, the first and foremost part, and the Prime Minister has made this very clear, the duty of government is the security of the nation. If it is concluded by the Secretary of State, yep, Lucas is great um, for operational conversions, uh, flights, etc., one 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 squadrons, all the, all the other things. But if there is no military reason to have it there, then they must suffer. At the moment... The, the good money would be on lossy mouth. Four months ago, few people would have imagined Colonel Gaddafi would still be in power by the middle of the summer. NATO forces began their operations, officially restricted to the protection of civilians, at a time when it seemed the rebel forces based in Benghazi would soon drive out Gaddafi, the latest in a series of revolutions across the region. Instead, the battle appears deadlocked and reports suggest there are growing divisions among the NATO allies. Christopher, you've been speaking to people who suggest the coalition starting to fall apart. What's happening is it's not as strong as it should be. That's, that's their attitude, far more uh, about that. And yes, there are some countries that are saying, well, this is going on and on and on. Um, we, we can't continue. One of those people who is bothered about it is, of course, Liam Fox himself, the Defence Secretary, and the, uh, the, the recent uh, Secretary of Defence at the Pentagon, uh, Robert Gates, saying that you cannot expect just a few people to do everything. Well, the truth is, NATO is structured in such a way that you do expect uh, just a few people to do everything because, A, they've got their expertise, they've got the opportunity, they've also got the political support. What's going on in NATO at the moment with some people saying, you know, do we really have to do this anymore? Uh, should we have been there in the first place? Because there's a lot of politics in this and there's a lot of money involved in this. Uh, was totally expected. The guys that are, ho- are, are staying are true to the original idea uh, are still true to the original idea, including the French who claim, who claim um, that they have been talking, albeit informally, uh, to the Gaddafi regime. Well, on the line now is uh, Mark Leighty, Chief of Strategic Communications at SHAPE, the military HQ and overall charge of the operation. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. What, what do you say to the perception that NATO, the operation, is stalled and support within the alliance is starting to break apart? I think that the perception it's stalled is wrong. I, I think it's, it may well be going slower than most people wanted or hoped, but I think the idea it's stalled um, misses the point of what the operation's about, which is that are civilians um, now under the same level of threat they were before we went in? Quite clearly they're not. The level of civilian casualties has plummeted. Um, if you imagine what would have happened if we'd not gone in, then Benghazi would have fallen probably the following day before we went in. Um, Misrata would have fallen. and. Given his previous record, we know what would have happened to all the civilians. So I think 
the aim of the mission, which was to protect civilians, is being succeeded in. Is it finalized? No, because the Gaddafi regime is still a threat to civilians. And as we've seen from the contact group and from the Berlin Ministerial, um, the sense is, is that the civilians are never going to be truly safe while Gaddafi is there. Um, but these things do take time. Is there frustration? Of course there is. And I think when a mission goes on for the length of time it has, you would expect there to be a debate. I think where you'd be wrong is if you then draw the conclusion from the debate that somehow the alliance is fracturing, which I think is simply not true. So we can kind of take it as read that we're not where we expected to be four months into the operation. What does that mean in terms of adjusting the overall time scale of how long this is going to take? Well, I think, you know, to, to use a phrase which can often be cliched, the thing is results-driven. Um, this goes on until there's an absolute certainty that civilians will not be, uh, will not be harmed. Now, in the current circumstances, according to the contact group, which is the groups of nations which are looking, if you like, overseeing the operation, um, they believe that there is a threat while present while Gaddafi is there. So potentially it could go on, but it's in a, most respects, and in a very real sense, it's up to the Libyan people. Um, NATO's job is not to find is not to find a peace solution. That's for a lot of other people. We've got this particular mandate. And that mandate has a lot of effects, but the main one is to protect civilians, which is what's happening. Although Anders Fer Rasmussen has said this week that the time to find a solution is now, which sort of suggests there's a growing sense of urgency about the situation. Oh, I think that's fair, certainly. I mean, because after all, you, you don't want to be having a, a significant combat operation going on into, well into the future. I think what you are seeing, and, and going back to your original question, is that this isn't a static situation. The uh, regime forces are steadily getting more and more degraded. They're losing more and more. They're very rarely on the offensive. If they are, they can't sustain it. What you are seeing is the rebel forces have gained in confidence and have been advancing. So, so while the situation is, is, not, uh, is not clear, it is certainly not static. And I think I would say, and, and, um, and the Secretary General certainly feels that Gaddafi is getting weaker. And I think that's true. You're seeing a lot of, you're seeing, you're seeing a significant number of defectors from its higher levels. His troops aren't really fighting very well at all. You're seeing signs that he's looking for a way out. Um, so it's not a static situation. It's not necessarily a clear one either. But I think insofar as it's moving, it's moving in a direction which we would want it to move, then that Gaddafi is getting weaker and his ability to harm civilians is definitely getting weaker. OK, Mark. Mark Leighty, Chief of Strategic Communications at SHAPE. Thank you very much for joining us. Northern Ireland's marching season has once again seen violence and unrest in key towns and cities. In the run-up to this year's Orange Order 12th of July marches, there have been scenes many of us thought had been consigned to the past. Northern Ireland's First and Deputy First Ministers are meeting to discuss the violence after dozens of arrests. BFBS reporter in Northern Ireland is Fiona Weir. She's been following events. It was in Belfast on the eve of the 12th that the worst civil unrest was to be witnessed. 22 police officers were injured when crowds of nationalists threw petrol bombs and masonry. Water cannon was used during trouble at Broadway where police were investigating reports that gunshots had been fired. On the Falls Road, a driver was dragged from his bus and the passengers ordered off. It was then driven at police lines on the Donegal Road but crashed a short distance away. 
Debris from the rioting was still smouldering on Broadway the next morning as politicians from both sides of the divide again called for calm and the Orangemen gathered from lodges all over the city for their annual march. Thousands lined the routes to watch as the parades passed by with their banners flying and lambeg drums beating to the familiar tunes. But it was later in the day as a feeder parade was returning home that the flames of hatred were again ignited. The trouble in North Belfast broke out after police in riot gear took up position ahead of the parade at the Ardoin shops. A crowd of about 200 people threw petrol bombs and other missiles at police who responded with water cannon and plastic baton rounds. Two police officers were engulfed in flames and a number were injured. I'm Louise Fitzpatrick and I'm working for the Ardoin Youth Providers Forum in Ardoin. We were on the streets from quarter to three the day. There was football on over in Solitude. There was a fun day in the cricket. Nobody wants to see this in their area. And we as youth workers need to try and come together to try and stop this from happening every year. It's madness. But Wednesday night's violence wasn't confined to Belfast. In Londonderry, police said children as young as 10 were involved in rioting. Petrol bombs were thrown at a police Land Rover and a van was set alight in the bog side. In Armagh, there were reports of disorder and a car was burnt out, while in Ballymena, army bomb disposal experts carried out a controlled explosion and in Dunloy, an orange hall was targeted with sectarian graffiti. 26 people have now been arrested. The riots are yet another reminder that Northern Ireland has a peace process, but it does not yet have peace. Well, Christopher, the violence of the last few days might surprise a lot of people outside Northern Ireland, should it? No, and one of the reasons it does, isn't it? Because we thought, if you like, on this side of the water, uh, oh, well, that's it done then. You know, the peace agreement. Uh, and it's a bit like Iraq. Take out the cameras. What war? Uh, it's as simple as that. I was in, Dub- uh, well, in Dublin, then over at Trim uh, uh, a couple of days ago. And we were standing by the Boyne at Trim, where the great battle of the Boyne, which is what the march, you know, the, 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 the march is all about, um, the Orange Order march is all about. And somebody said to me, oh, well, we're coming up to the 12th. Uh, they'll be in the Donegal Road. And we ought to remember outside of Northern Ireland, outside of the province, this sort of thing is, goes on every year. bit different now uh, this year, but next year it might not be so bad, but it always happens. We simply look the other way. And Christopher, on that slightly uh, depressing note, we have to leave it for today. Thank you very much for, for joining me on the programme, Christopher Lee. Don't forget, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep and you can as ever get in touch by emailing us at sitrep at bfbs.com well kate's back in the chair next week but from me for now matt teal thanks for listening and goodbye this is sitrep on bfbs